Well, you made it despite the rain. It was hard to see on our drive on the freeway with all the semis and rain, and but you made it. That's good. Um, so this morning we have Isaiah 56 through 58. And uh, go ahead, and if you do have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there, and we'll be working through it some. Isaiah 56, verse 1, introduces the theme that we have for our three chapters this morning. Verse 1 says, This is what the Lord says. Maintain justice and do what is right. For my salvation is close at hand and my righteousness will soon be revealed. So righteousness has been an important topic throughout Isaiah. There has been clear accountability for Judah's lack of righteousness. And then on the other hand, there's been this grand display of the Lord's righteousness as he comes to save his people. And so in our three chapters this morning, we learn more about what it means for us as God's people to live in righteousness. So as we began our study, Isaiah chapters 1 through 39, and those, righteousness is primarily about keeping the statutes of the Lord. And then there's this shift in chapter 40 um, through through chapter 55, where the focus is on the righteousness of God as he faithfully delivers his people from their sin. And now in this last section that we have from Isaiah 56 through 66, um, there's a synthesis of these two ideas, both um, the statutes of the Lord and the righteousness of God, and now how they come together in God's people. Um, And so we are made righteous through God's action on our behalf, But indeed, actual righteous living is required for God's people. But we've discovered throughout Isaiah that this righteousness is only possible through the grace of God and the inner work of God's healing. And that's another emphasis in our chapters today. So in essence, when we think about righteousness, it's the right or appropriate behavior of the covenant partners. And the covenant partners are the Lord himself and God's chosen nation or God's people. And so all throughout this time, we've seen that God's chosen nation of Israel has really struggled to respond to God's initiative in the right way. Frequently, they've assumed that simply their birthright and their bloodline will secure them God's favor. They've been chosen so they can do whatever it is they want to do. But Isaiah 56 clearly refutes this idea. What God desires most is a people who are committed to honoring him with every part of their life, their worship, their work, and their treatment of others. And this invitation is not only for those who belong to the nation of Israel, but it's also extended to any foreigner who would bind himself to the Lord. And we see that as um, Isaiah 56 continues. And it talks about the, the eunuch. And so even the faithful eunuch who has no hope of being a part of this bloodline or fathering the next generation, can have the sure hope of an everlasting name when they bind themselves to the Lord. And so we see that the Lord responds graciously and generously, not only to his chosen nation, but to all who want to commit themselves to him and his ways, regardless of their physical lineage. And so this is good news for those of us who aren't Jewish, and I imagine that's a fair amount number of us here. The promises of God have been extended to us, 
And the Lord has an extensive plan to still gather others to himself. And one of the invitations in our chapters this morning that God extends to the people of all nations is to be a people of prayer. In 56 verse 7, he even says that he will give us joyful prayer lives, that those who hold fast to the Lord will be brought to his holy mountain and given joy in his house of prayer. And so we find that righteousness is cultivated and then released through this furnace of prayer in the Lord's presence. Being a people of prayer has and of intercession has been God's design for humans from the very beginning. Even before the fall in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the evening. They had fellowship with their creator and they released his will on earth. And then the nation of Israel begins in a prayer meeting in Mount Sinai, which which is ablaze with God's fire. And at that time, God called his people to be a kingdom of priests. And the first assignment he gave Israel was to build a worship sanctuary, a house of prayer in the wilderness. God's purpose for his people to be this house of prayer is also clearly seen in the reign of David. As we saw when we studied the book of Nehemiah, David had established worship in the house of God that was led by singers and musicians who were free from other duties and employed in that work day and night. And King David financed more than 4,000 full-time paid musicians and singers to minister before the Lord. And then Jesus carries this mantle as well as he began his public ministry in the prayer meeting by himself with the Lord in the wilderness And then ended it in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus, we know, personally spent many long hours in prayer. And that he emphasized prayer or watching more than any other activity when he spoke about the generation that he would return. And Jesus reaffirmed those words of Isaiah uh, about being a house of prayer as well um, in Matthew 21, 13. He comes to the temple and he sees the money changers and he says... It is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. So in Matthew 21, Jesus has come to the temple. And instead of it being that set aside place for prayer and worship as God designed, it became a place of financial extortion. And that's kind of what we see in these chapters as well. That there's financial extortion instead of deep fellowship with the Lord. And then as this journey of prayer continues, the church begins in a prayer meeting in the upper room as Jesus' followers wait for the promised outpouring of the Holy Spirit from the Father. And then as God's people, we continue joyfully in prayer now as we intercede for um, God's will to be on earth as it is in heaven. And then when I realized this fact, it really changed the way I saw a lot of things, that we're going to even continue in intercession in heaven. We kind of think that's only a work that we have right now, but we're still going to be engaged in prayer in heaven and in our resurrection bodies. We'll be gathered around the throne in worship. And so one of the ways that I've heard about functioning as a house of prayer um, is this way, that God speaks his word to us. He tells us what's on his heart and what he longs for. And these words move our heart. We're like, God, you're right. And so we speak these words back. God, would you release this? And then God does. His heart is moved and these things are released. And so in other words, God initiates. He shows us what he's thinking. We respond and ask for these things in prayer. And then God releases what he's shown us. 
And so the result of this is God's resources being released on earth, whether it's power or love or money, wisdom, creative ideas, unity, deliverance, freedom. Just as Israel was formed into this kingdom of priests, so we all who are bound to the Lord um, are called to be a kingdom of priests. So everyone, Israelite and foreigner, foreigner who hold fast to God's covenant can fulfill that role of partnering with the Lord to release his righteous reign on earth. So as you move down in that chapter a bit from in 56, verse 9 then shifts from the foreign eunuchs who were walking in righteousness to the spiritual leaders of Israel who persist in doing evil. These leaders are only committed to their own pleasure and financial gain. They are asleep to the reality of their own sin and what is happening in their nation. Their nation is in desperate spiritual condition, and they don't care. The righteous ones in their nation are disappearing, and no one notices. And then in 57 verse 3, the audience changes from that the spiritual leaders of Israel to you. Is Isaiah now addresses the people of Israel who have forsaken their identity as a righteous nation, as that kingdom of priests. And instead of binding themselves to the Lord and his way of life, they bound themselves to vile practices and idolatry. And instead of seeking refuge in the Lord, they have engaged in demonic manipulation, seeking to control spiritual forces to their own end. They even sacrificed their children in an attempt to secure a better future. And instead of a refuge in the Lord, they've sought solace in the temporary pleasure of an array of lovers. And then when this empty way of life didn't produce the desired effects they wanted, they refused to repent and reinvested themselves again in this religion that they thought they could control. But the Lord stays with them. And he offers a way out of this life of idolatry in 57.13. He says, but whoever takes refuge in me will inherit the land and possess my holy mountain. So possessing the land has not to do with just bloodline and birthright, but with taking refuge in the Lord. And this taking refuge in the Lord gives us a much superior security in his presence. We might think that trying to control things in our own power or through false religion gives us a sense of security. But no, the Lord says, my presence is what will give you security. For those who are contrite and humble, the Lord will remove all the obstacles in their way and fully restore the fellowship that their hearts long for. And then so tenderly in verse 15 of chapter 57 The majestic God who's created the universe has committed himself to dwelling with those who are lowly in spirit. That's so amazing. That he wants to dwell in us, that he's made our hearts for him. And so that's the source of true righteousness, a heart that is healed by God. Instead of the restless wandering of the wicked, the Lord offers all those who come to him peace, and healing, contentment. God will do in them and in us all that is needed to walk in righteousness from a heart level instead of a mere outward form. Jesus' parable of the Pharisee and tax collector in Luke 18, um, verses 10 through 14, 
also describes this reality of what true righteousness is. The Pharisee was very proud of his own religious achievements. You can list off all the the religious activities that he did. The tax collector, on the other hand, humbly acknowledged his failure and need. And it was the tax collector that went home justified before God. And then at the end of that parable, Jesus adds this commentary. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. It is this empty outward form of religion that is scrutinized and condemned in chapter 58. As chapter 58 opens, this chapter, the people seem to be ready to seek God. On their surface, their lips say the right words, and they're engaging in ritualistic fasting. So it seems on the surface that everything's okay. But the Lord sees right through their act to the state of their hearts and the rotten fruit of their labors. Instead of good fruit of righteousness, their fasts end in fights and quarreling. And even more critically, the people have forgotten what God even asked for in the first place. That God did not even command fasting except for the Day of Atonement and in times of national crisis. What God did clearly ask them for was righteous living. A simple look at the Shema in Deuteronomy 6 or the Ten Commandments would remind them that God's most passionate desire is for a heart-level relationship with him that then springs into the ethical treatment of others. In Isaiah 58, the fasting that these people are pursuing seems to be more about manipulating God to do what they want instead of truly submitting to God's yoke and binding themselves to the Holy One of Israel. In Isaiah 57, the people's attempts of righteousness were depicted as idolatrous. And now in 58, their attempts at their religious activities are described as selfish and oppressive. And this can still be a problem for God's people today. We can be blind to the oppression around us. Or we think about the history of the the U.S. and ways in which people said they love Jesus, but they oppressed others. And then we too can think that if we participate in religious activities, that God will give us what we want. We attend worship and Bible study, pray and fast, then God's obligated to respond. And while God loves us and wants to respond, he doesn't want to be manipulated. After all, we've read many times in Isaiah that his ways are higher than our ways. And all of these beautiful activities are good and life-giving when we engage in them to bind ourselves to the Lord instead of thinking we can use them to control God. So this temptation to worship a God we can control is not limited to the generations that Isaiah directly addressed. For even our country and emerging generations here, this has taken the form of what researchers have called moralistic therapeutic deism, or MTD for short. Moralistic therapeutic deism. Unfortunately, researchers have discovered, kind of since the turn of this this century, that the new dominant American religion um, is MTD, even of those raised in the church. And uh, Christian Smith, a researcher um, with the National Study of Youth and Religion at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, he and his researchers took a close look at the religious beliefs held by most American teenagers 
and they found out that it was this moralistic therapeutic deism. They just kind of went in to find out what teenagers believe this, these days, and this is what they discovered. And these beliefs consist of, um, they kind of boil down to these five things. The first is, a god exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. And the second is, God wants people to be good and nice and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. And then the third, and I think we see this in Isaiah, is that the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. And then four, that God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life, except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And then fifth, good people go to heaven when they die. And so this deity behind this moralistic therapeutic deism is a lot like the deistic god of the 18th century philosophers. It's not a god who thunders from the mountain or um, is holy like Isaiah saw when he was called to be a prophet, nor a god who will serve as a judge. Instead, this undemanding deity is more interested in solving our problems in the way that we see fit and making people happy. In short, uh, we've come to see God as a combination of a divine butler and a cosmic therapist. (laughs) He's always on call, ready to take care of any problems that arise, and his professional help is there to get us out of um, our problems and to help us feel good about ourselves. And he's not too involved in the details of life, especially in areas we'd rather keep him out of. The researchers of MTD explained this is not a religion of repentance from sin, of keeping the Sabbath, of living as a servant of the sovereign deity, or of steadfastly saying one's prayers, faithfully observing high holy days, of building character through suffering, or a basking in God's love and grace, or spending oneself in gratitude and love for the cause of social justice, etc. Rather, what seems to be the actual dominant religion among U.S. teenagers is essentially about feeling good, happy, secure, and at peace. It is about attaining subjective well-being, being able to resolve problems, and getting along amiably with other people. And um, this research was originally done around, I think, 2003, and I was talking to some of my youth ministry friends, and it's like, do we think this is still a thing? And I think it's still a thing, and now you know, these teenagers have grown up and gotten older, and it's still going on, and it's not just them. But this God that was described in the moralistic therapeutic deism is certainly not the God we've encountered through the eyes of Isaiah. Isaiah has shown us that God is holy. He's revealed a plan for right living. God judges sin, and he provides for a righteousness that we cannot muster on our own strength. And that God calls to bind our whole lives to him. And that God has something far better and majestic in mind for our lives than for us to simply feel good about ourselves, and to be happy. He keeps describing this joy that can come in his presence. And so as we close chapter 58 in Isaiah, we see that God's blessing springs forth when we see others from his perspective and that we treat others with weaker positions in life in a way that honors the God who created them. He loves it when heartfelt worship And love for others is connected. When we care about spending time with him and also relieving the situations of injustice found in our world. And this all sounds a lot like the two greatest commandments that Jesus summarized in Matthew 22. About loving the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to love your neighbor as yourself. 
And he said, and this fulfills the law and the prophets. And he wasn't joking. (laughs) So let's read together, starting at verse 6, so we can know um, what kinds of practices that really honor honor God and lead to our joy in his presence. I just thought this was such a beautiful section. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe him and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. If you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's holy day honorable, and if you honor it by not going your own way and you do and not doing as you please or speaking idle words, then you will find your joy in the Lord and I will cause you to ride on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father, Jacob." The mouth of the Lord has spoken. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words that give life. Lord, we thank you that you are the one who comes to put in us a righteousness that we can't live in our own strength. And so, Lord, we pray for healing in those broken places of our hearts and ways in which we try to earn your favor and ways in which we try to manipulate you for our own desires and the ways we simply want to do what we want without binding ourselves to you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us eyes to see the goodness of your plan, the goodness of what you have designed, and that with all of our heart, all of our being, we would want to bind ourselves to you and to take refuge in you. For you are our strength, our song, and our redeemer. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we have a a kind of a a way to live this out almost immediately. Um, Margaret came in this morning and reminded me about the prayer and fasting for Durham. And I even noticed this this morning. I was taking out of my bag that I had from church on Sunday. And on the front, it says our, our, from Isaiah 58 verse nine, then if you call, the Lord will answer. And if you cry to him, he will say, here I am. 